All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the video version of this episode, you can find a link in the show notes. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So I put out a two-part series not too long ago titled A Critical Error in Calvinism, Part 1 and 2. I think that was the title, something uh, to that effect. But this two-part series, I tried to summarize, I tried to explain by bringing in clips from a variety of of Calvinists and Reformed people, theologians, pastors, let them kind of speak for themselves and in reference to what I think is is my primary uh, issue with Calvinism. The main thing that that caused me initially uh, years ago when I really started searching all this out that caused me to reject Calvinism, it came down to this concept of union with Christ and a fundamental uh, misunderstanding, and I, I suppose it'd be right to say even a misappropriation of this concept that exists within some of Calvinism's core doctrines. And you see this particularly showing up in places like Ephesians 1.4, which is a, a very well-used proof text for Calvinism. So I believe that in him, the in him of Ephesians 1 is absolutely essential to understanding what Paul is trying to say. In other words, you need to know what Paul meant by, you know, he constantly refers to in him, in him, in Christ, in the beloved. And so I think we have to approach passages like Ephesians 1, uh, which would include references to God's election, God choosing us, God predestining us. Um, My challenge to Calvinists would be, is can you find a place where you see God extending any portion, any amount any individual blessing or benefit of his grace, of salvation, of any of the things that Christ uh, bought for us. Is there a passage you can point to that can um, show God extending these, God giving any of these benefits to people who are not yet in Christ? Um, So this, this concept of in Christ, in short, I would say if you uh, have issues with the definition I'm going to give, with the idea I'm going to give, obviously this won't be comprehensive uh, because there's a lot to the concept of in Christ. But in summary, and this is something that both Calvinists and non-Calvinist theologians and thinkers have agreement on, to be in Christ involves this being engrafted into him, where there's this connection, relationship, union. And so Ephesians 1 Uh, three, I believe it is, says that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, Colossians will will have Paul saying that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it'll say you are complete in him. And so there's these verses, that's just a sample of, I think, many more that emphasize this idea that uh, everything God has to give, every spiritual blessing, 
all these elements, all these aspects, all these benefits of reconciliation. God has, in a sense, packaged it all up in one, one place and, and, and better yet, in, in one person, in Christ. He's, he's put everything he has to give to the believer in terms of reconciliation with himself, favor, restoration, and relationship, uh, forgiveness of sins, redemption, and I would say including, you'll find in Ephesians 1.4, being chosen, which is also said to be in him. So all these blessings, I don't find any evidence in, in the New Testament or, or anywhere in scripture that would indicate that these salvific reconciliation related privileges are bestowed upon anybody. Um, and, and keep in mind what I'm particularly thinking of is this benefit of being elect, chosen, predestined. This also, these also are spiritual blessings, things that Paul would say exist, are, are apprehended, are received, are, are uh, possessed in an exclusive context, which is this context of being engrafted, connected into Christ. But yet Calvinism says that God chose us, not in Christ, but God chose us to be in Christ. So these are individual people being selected out of the wise and the strong and the high-born. And then add this, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So we are chosen to be in Christ, chosen individually to be in Christ, chosen individually to be in Christ. In other words, first, before we were in this connection with Christ, while still separated, you could look at an elect person and say, God chose you. It, obviously, we don't know who the elect are, but say you had these glasses, these goggles that gave you this uh, you know, this knowledge, this this perception of who the elector, and you could walk through a grocery store. And even though you, may, you might be looking at somebody who is not yet a believer, if these glasses were registering, this is an elect person, keep in mind, this is not a believer. This person, according to Ephesians 2, is still separate from Christ, uh, without God, without hope. Um, you could look at that person and, and know that God's perception of them, the way God thinks about them, and even the way I'd say God relates to them, is that he has applied this blessing to them of being chosen. You can say, God has chosen you. You belong to God. You belong to Christ. In God's mind, you are, you're his sheep. Um, and so this is a benefit, a spiritual blessing that I think Paul says, no, that's not, those things aren't true. That's not a person's identity unless they are first within this context of a connectedness to Christ. You don't, you don't get the spiritual privilege or, or blessing of being chosen so that that can then eventually place you in Christ. And you will find many Calvinists, though they might not be doing it intentionally, but you will hear this show up in many, many Calvinists as they talk about this, that as they as they talk about Ephesians 1-4, sometimes even as they'll read it, uh, sometimes they'll leave out the in Christ. And I think, it, which, you know, I believe that you could 
take Ephesians 1, 4 and, and still you know, remove the in him from the passage and come away with the same interpretation of it. And so you'll see that show up sometimes where, where there's just maybe a de-emphasis on the in him or it's kind of set off to the side a bit, might get a, an honorable mention as it were, but it's not kind of given the center stage as I think it should be in these verses. It, it should be completely intricately wrapped around uh, interwoven within how we understand these spiritual blessings that I think throughout Ephesians 1 uh, through 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there where it ends, where it, it's describing, unpacking these spiritual blessings that Paul at the beginning of the chapter says, all of them, every one is in Christ. Uh, so I think they de-emphasize the in him, uh, in particular in verse 4, where the emphasis becomes on ch the words chosen or the phrase chosen before the foundation of the world. And, and somewhat passing mention, I think, is, is often given to the in him. Uh, or you'll, you'll also hear this show up. You'll hear Calvinist kind of word it in the way of, of saying, ultimately, God chose the elect to be in Christ. And so if you look very carefully at Ephesians 1.4, you'll notice that in no translation of it is it saying God chose individuals to be in Christ. In other words, what that does, what phrasing it that way does, is it disconnects the choice of God from the union with Christ. It makes this choice something that exists separately and distinctly from this context of union with Christ. While Ephesians 1.4 and Paul says that God chose us in Christ, the choice of God took place in this context of our connectedness to him. And if, uh, but Calvinism would say, no, actually, God chose us first. This choice of God took place where we became the chosen of God. And that, again, they'll phrase it, God chose us to be in Christ. So that, that makes them separate from each other, doesn't it? It, it makes this, the choice here prior to the connection with Christ. And in fact, th this choice is something that causes us to get into this context of union with Christ in the first place. So again, this is not a choice of God in Christ, it's a choice of God outside of Christ. But what you find when you look at Ephesians 1 is that Paul is placing the in him as the necessary uh, requirement, stipulation that those who are chosen are chosen not to be in Christ, but they're chosen because they're in Christ. So it's this connection with Christ, this union with him that allows who he is, what he is to flow and become true of the believer. So to say something separate from that, to say that no, God chose us to be in Christ, I think what that does is it's, it's a choice of God, not in Christ, it's God choosing us in the Father. It's the Father uh, giving to us, us getting some aspect of reconciliation with God outside of Christ. So I think Christ is all things for us. This, these are things I want to dive deeper into. I want to talk more about this and, and more into what it means to be in Christ. And I plan to do that. But for now, just to say that, I, you know, when you read through the New Testament, I think the unavoidable conclusion that you come to is that Paul saw Christ as the container of you know all spiritual blessings, all the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. He'll say in Colossians in 1 Corinthians 1:30, he he describes how Christ is uh, has become for us righteousness, sanctification, redemption. You have places where Jesus, you know, the I am statements. He'll say, "I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life." Uh, so the Bible 
the New Testament emphasizes this idea that what God has to offer humanity is not, I don't think we should think about it in terms of like God having a variety of things, separate and distinct things, as in God has this benefit to give, this blessing, he gives us this over here, and then he gives us Christ also. So it, you know, it kind of conveys this idea that there's some a multitude of, of benefits or blessings that God has that that involve our salvation. So God gives election, and then eventually that election, that benefit of election, brings us into union with Christ, uh, for example. Instead, what I think is true is that God gives, you know, really one thing in whom is everything. So instead of God giving things that are separate and distinct from Christ, as in he chooses us in order to get Christ, I think, no, instead it's if we have Christ, we have everything else. And we only have anything in as much as we have Christ and he has us. And so if there is a separation, a bridge that has not been gapped, if there's still a, a you know, your children of wrath, separate from Christ, you do not belong to him yet. Uh, those who do not have a spirit, as Romans 8 says, do not belong to Christ. So how could you belong to Christ as the sheep if you don't have a spirit yet? Uh, kind of a side drill there, but I think there's, you know, this idea that really is quite simple. It, it, this really isn't, you know, when you, when you step back and realize, I think what I'm saying here, this really is a quite simple concept. That is that every blessing related to reconciliation is Christ himself. It's in him. And we only have anything in as much as we're connected to him. Nobody disagrees that that connection comes by faith. Uh, that that's that's you know not really a highly contested concept that our union with Christ comes through our faith in Christ. But here's the problem, and here I'm going to kind of try to wrap this up with the second thing that I kind of want to begin to add into this whole discussion is you know you have not only God electing us, giving this the the elect this blessing this privilege this benefit of being chosen by God which as John MacArthur has put it in some of his videos this is the first and primary spiritual blessing he will say the first of these blessings is the blessing of being chosen and predestined this is the first and primary of all heavenly blessings this is where our salvation begins. And this doctrine of sovereign choosing, predestination, sovereign election is what determines not only the beginning, but the ending. So the first and primary spiritual blessing, the one upon which all the others are hinged. So in other words, if you have this blessing being chosen in the Calvinistic sense, then you get all the others. So the most important, the most fundamental aspect of our salvation is being chosen by God. Uh, it's no longer actually becoming connected to Christ by faith. That's somewhat secondary, isn't it? I mean, if not, tell me how it's not. Because what is more important, the more important event in our history as Christians, followers of Jesus, is this first one. Because if we get this, if we get this thing that nobody knows how you get it, why you get it, why God chooses who he does, but this is what matters. And really this, right, this connection to Christ by faith is contingent on this. This is the foundation. 
this is the beginning, election, unconditional election. So it, first of all, I think what you're seeing here, if you think about it, this, this is one of my main issues, it really is with Calvinism, is you have things, you have distinct benefits from Christ taking a preeminent spot in our salvation where I think Christ belongs. God, I do not believe, gives us a variety of things. We, he doesn't dispense this mysterious privilege of being his chosen and elect. This one I choose. This one gets this blessing, this privilege of being ch my chosen and elect one applied to them before the foundation of the world. And that will eventually bring them into connection with my son. Now, second, that's not the only thing you have. You have that, you know, really the first and primary spiritual blessing, as MacArthur will say, given to the elect person, according to Calvinism, outside of this connection. So while Jesus will say, abide in me, you know, apart from me, you can, you can do nothing. I would say it's equally accurate to say uh, that apart from him, separate from him, that in other words, if you're not grafted into him in this intimate, organic, living way as a vine is uh, uh, connected to a branches, then not only can you not do anything in terms of, you know, fruit of the spirit, operation in the kingdom of God, living works, righteousness, peace, and joy, not only can you not do anything, but I don't think you can have anything anything in terms of, you know, these, again, these spiritual blessings being referred to in Ephesians 1, where Paul says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to us in Christ, in this context, this context of a connection to Jesus. So not only do you have unconditional election, the most foundational, fundamental, important element of our salvation, bestowed, applied, whatever terminology you wanna use, on the believer, before this moment, this moment takes precedence then, has preeminence over this moment. Our connection to Jesus becomes secondary. Now, not only does it become secondary because it comes second to God's choosing of us, it becomes third in line. And this is why, because you have unconditional election, this privilege, this benefit, this blessing being bestowed upon the elect, you've got that, the first and primary one, but then you get the second one. This is one I wanted to add in here at the end. Regeneration. Uh, this is something that could take a whole video to talk about, and, and, I, and I will in the future. You know, this plays into regeneration precedes faith, which those like R.C. Sproul have said really is, is you know, summarizes that statement, the, the core, uh, you know, the core of what Reformed theology is. This is the, the essence of Calvinism, it, it, really. Regeneration precedes faith. In other words, not only do you have, you know, keep in mind faith. What, what does faith do? Faith connects us to the Son of God. Faith brings us into a living relationship, an organic union with Jesus, where before we didn't have that connection. We were separated from Christ, and therefore I would say cut off, cut off from him, cut off from the life-giving source where there's no, there's no flow. As a lamp that's not connected to an outlet has no capacity, no ability to, to be what it is, to have what it needs, to, to operate the way it was intended to. It cannot express light as it is intended to. It cannot, it cannot serve its intended function. So also, when we are cut off, disconnected, not plugged in, 
to the source of every spiritual blessing, we can't have any of them. And I would say, um, arguably, this is an equally uh, significant problem and an equally you know substantial blessing and privilege that Calvinism says we get prior to you know this connection. And that is again regeneration. They say regeneration comes before faith, and faith is that point where we come into connection with Jesus. That so you have the union with Christ here, where Paul says we get every spiritual blessing, but before that. Calvinism, once again, says you get this thing. You get this mysterious thing from God, life, this thing called life. I would love to know, and I'm genuinely asking Calvinists, what, what is this? What is this life? What is it? Because Christ says he is the resurrection and the life. What is this life that we get that not is something we get as a result of plugging in to the lamp, right? Or the, plugging into the wall. This is this is a lamp somehow getting light that allows it the ability to plug into the wall. And I think I think this is this is clearly objectively backwards, getting the cart before the horse. This is God giving life to a person. And this life, regeneration life. I genuinely want to know what that is, Calvinists. I want to know what that is. I'm not. I'm not. Not saying this in an attempt to be disrespectful or derogatory, but as a genuine concern that this this is creating something that I think is deeply flawed in its Christology. What is this life that you are saying the elect possess? separate from this connection with Christ. Now you say, oh, well, it's it all happens at once. You know, regeneration, we can't really put a specific order. There's a mystery to it. Well, why is it that you have to appeal to mystery so often when presented with what seem to be clear contradictions to your theology? Because on the one hand, you'll say, oh, the ordo salutis is absolutely essential. This is the essence really of what, of un accurately understanding the gospel. You'll emphasize the ordo salutis on one hand, say we must know the essence of Reformed theology is knowing this order. Regeneration precedes faith, which, you know, rationally, logically can be deduced in saying regeneration precedes union with Christ. You are placing life before union with Christ. You are saying that God gives us some mysterious spiritual life, which I would still like to know what exactly that is, that is something separate and distinct from Christ himself. Because in fact, this life that you're saying believers get is not Christ himself, but it enables us to become connected to Christ. Now, how, how do we get life outside of this, this connection? What is that life? Paul talks about in Colossians that he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And John 6, I think it's 35, somewhere around there where Jesus says, unless you eat uh, the flesh and drink the blood of, of the Son of Man, you have no life, precisely no life in you. Not some life. It's not if you eat and drink, uh, if you do not eat and do not drink, you know, him as bread, as living water, then you, you have regenerative life, uh, but you don't have this other version of life. He doesn't say that. He says no life. So consuming Jesus is a necessary prerequisite for life, which makes sense, doesn't it? Where does our life come from? Did God set up a pattern 
a physical pattern in the world that completely contradicts the spiritual pattern? Isn't the tree of life itself a pattern of how we have spiritual life through consuming something that itself is life? Isn't Jesus the tree of life that we must be eating from, consuming, which Jesus will later say in John 6, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So I think he's defining what, what it means to eat and drink him. It means to come to him, to believe in him, to approach him with, with faith, a, a faith that depends on him, that that takes him in his promises, his word for oneself, that, that consumes that into one's soul so that it, it has this effect as food does going into our body. It, the nutrients come in and it, it, it makes our body healthy. It makes it well and, and makes it function more properly. In the same way, when we consume Christ, he, he becomes our life. How do we get this thing called life? that somehow then is actually the, not, not something that is sourced from Christ, but is actually the cause that brings us into this connection with Christ. Again, I think what you have there is you have a lamp somehow, you know, getting this thing called electricity, this thing called power energy that is given to it that is separate and distinct from uh, this power that it then gets, you know, this this energy and power that lights it up, that allows it then to become connected into the wall. You know, it, it's kind of this idea that regeneration precedes faith. God has to give you life so that you can then become connected to Christ by faith, so that you can get, then become united with him by receiving him. Uh, unless you're going to somehow say that, no, actually, there's some sort of union that takes place before regeneration or, or actually this Ordo Salutis involves union with Christ, you know, at the very point of regeneration before, before, and then that enables, I, I don't know, but I think it's Calvinism itself that puts the significant in, uh, emphasis on the Ordo Salutis, emphasizing that regeneration must come first. That God first makes us alive so that we can then subsequently believe. Well, I see no way around how that is not saying God makes us alive so that we can then subsequently, by faith, become connected to the one who is life. So you have God giving us this spiritual blessing, first and primary one, according to John MacArthur. The most fundamental blessing, privilege, thing we need concerning reconciliation with God and salvation. First, we get that. Then we get this thing called life regeneration, which again, I'm not entirely sure what this is, but this thing called life makes us alive. Now, keep in mind, I don't, I don't, maybe Calvinists would somehow try to argue that this life is Jesus. I know they would say somehow that it comes from Jesus, I'm sure. But how is it that we're, we're receiving these aspects of Christ, like in different, different steps, as if, Christ can be had in parts, as if we can have parts, aspects, elements of Christ, while not yet having all of him. I think that instead, every spiritual blessing is in Christ. I think we have all of him or we have none of him. We either have this connection and so that all of his benefits, all that he is, is flowing to us, or we don't have them. So, 
to be disconnected from Christ is to be disconnected from the one who himself is life. Life is a person. Um, again, he says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't think God is going to give us a thing called resurrection in the last days. I think Jesus is our resurrection. It's our being connected in this intimate union with him that becomes our resurrection because we are in him and he is in, in us. You know, as John says, if we have the son, we have life. If we do not have the son, we do not have life. So Jesus is our life. Again, Colossians, uh, Paul says this, that Christ too is our life. Uh, when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. And so this is a, a genuine argument. This isn't, this isn't an attempt to have a mic drop moment. This is an attempt to say, look at, look at how smart I am. Look at what I figured out. Look at how dumb Calvinists are. I, I love those of you who are Calvinists and believe these things. This is not an attack on you personally. This is a genuine pondering thing that I've had in my mind for 10 years, and I've expressed it on YouTube a variety of times. I don't feel like there have been, and I don't know that there are beyond appeals to mystery, um, ways to resolve this. Because I think in order to resolve it, you're going to unavoidably arrive at uh, further contradictions and inconsistencies. And I think I, I see this show up in the sort of responses that I've gotten. But I think this is a valid question. How is it that we get these two primary foundational spiritual blessings, you know, and, and really it's this one about life that, that probably gets me the most because it's just this idea that life is something that can be had, you know, before, at least before, like what, there's this emphasis put on life before union with Christ. That, that is the essence of Ordo Salutis, that life must come before coming to him. It's in fact, it's our, it's this life that we get that allows us to come to Jesus. So while you have Jesus in the gospel of John saying, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. You have Calvinists saying, if you know, if you had life, only then would you be able to come to me? Well, Jesus says, I think he's just in that is the implication. Again, he's saying he is life. He is that source of life. The only way to have life is to come to him. You can't have life if you're not willing to come to it. You can't have life if you're not willing to eat and drink that which is the only source of life. Adam and Eve were cut off from the tree of life. And I think that serves as a pattern, an analogy, if you will, for how our spiritual life works. Isaiah 55 says, here and your soul will live. Our life, our souls come alive, not by some mysterious regenerative work of God, but by God speaking and us listening, us hearing, having ears that are willing to hear. Hear and your soul will live, he says. Not your, I will make your soul alive so that you are then able to hear. It is this hearing, this intimate sort of relational dynamic taking place with the Son of God that then forms life. We don't get life to then be able to enter into this relational dynamic with Jesus. This relational connectedness and grafting into Christ as a branches to a vine, that becomes our life. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, I believe we have nothing. We have precisely no spiritual blessings. That would include being chosen. That would include being 
given this regenerative life. These are two things that are foundational aspects of our reconciliation and salvation that Calvinists have the Father dispensing, applying, giving to people who are yet, you know, it's be right to say before their union with Christ. While Paul says that everything we get is is gotten, is apprehended in this exclusive context of union with Christ, Calvinism would say that actually some of the main things we get are getting are gotten, received before and outside of this context of union with Christ. And they're actually separate blessings, distinct things from what we get in Christ that allow us to get into Christ in the first place. I remember about 10 years ago thinking through these things and just coming to what I think is a realization that Calvinism has a genuine desire to, you know, uphold the sovereignty of God. And, and they think that what they're doing is upholding this theological system that is not man-centered, but is God-centered. I think what they've inadvertently done is created a soteriology that though may have some form of a you know God-centeredness, if it's correct uh, uh, or appropriate to call it that, which I'm not entirely sure, but all the same, I think what it's resulted in is a soteriology that is not Christ-centered. It doesn't have Christ at the center. Christ is not the substance that holds all things together. He, he's kind of like this, this one part of many in salvation, a, a subsequent step that follows these other steps. You get unconditionally elect, then you get regenerative life, and this ultimately brings you to Christ. So it just feels like he's kind of one step of many in God's salvation plan, where I think, I think the New Testament thinks Christ is all in all, and in him you have all things, out of him you have nothing. I think these are questions that I'm looking for uh, if there's legitimate responses to something hopefully beyond an accusation that I'm just flattening it out. I'm just making, you know, salvation a, a pancake. Tell me what you mean by that. I think often it's sort of just this rhetoric that's tossed out in response to arguments like this by Calvinists. I don't, I'm not convinced thoroughly that when they offer these sort of responses that they even necessarily know what they're saying when they say it. Um, I feel like it's more of just an esoteric mysterious appeal that they don't really know entirely what they mean, but it's just kind of, you don't understand God's eternal decree and how there's a decree and then there's an application of that decree. Well, sure, but you still have God actually applying this choice, this privilege of choice and this regenerative life. He applies this to people outside of Christ. So I don't, I've never really seen how this appeal to mystery really solves anything. I think it just restates the problem and perhaps even opens up more issues uh, to be looked at. And so I'm offering this as what is a legitimate, sincere concern about Calvinism and what I think it's founded upon, which I would say is, is some distorted uh, Christology and uh, really just a misunderstanding, I think, of the centrality, the preeminence of Christ as all in all in salvation, though I know Calvinists would disagree. I do think that when you look at this, if you just kind of put it on a timeline, Calvinists would say, oh, well, you can't put it on a timeline because God's outside of time. Well, I think we can go there. I know, I know that's going to be a response of many. I do think unavoidably we're going to arrive right back here because in an appeal to mystery, you still have God applying these privileges outside of Christ. I, don't, I just, I think that's unavoidable. Um, if 
if this choice, if this life is something that is apprehended in this exclusive context in Christ, I would very much like to hear a definition, an explanation of what in Christ means, of what, what does it mean that God chooses us in him? What does it mean that, that we get life only in him, including regeneration life? I just, I don't think you can arrive there and be consistent. I think you're, you're going to find that you're attempting to plug holes in a ship and one hole's gonna keep popping out after the other. The moment you plug one, you're gonna create another one. That seems to be, at least, in the responses I've received to this, that's that seems to be the, the sort of responses I've received. And so I'm, I really would like to know the strongest arguments, the strongest possible responses. So feel free to comment those below. I really would like to hear them. I can't promise I'm gonna be able to read them all because I, I sometimes will get a lot of comments. Uh, I try to scan through and, and, and look at as many as I can though. Um, but this is uh, just an attempt again to quickly put forward what is one of my primary concerns, my biggest issues with Calvinism. Um, and so hopefully this helps for those of you who maybe uh, didn't wanna watch part one and two of my last videos or those who maybe watched it and just want some further clarification. Um, hopefully this was helpful toward those ends in some ways. And if you enjoyed this video, I would appreciate liking, subscribing, commenting, uh, even sharing the video. All those things do help to help promote the video and push it out to more people, which is obviously helpful for the channel. Um, also wanted to just say thank you to different patrons who have joined. I've had several people join in the last uh, month or so as uh, monthly patron supporters of the channel. And, and it really is you guys who are allowing me to continue to have time to do all this stuff. And my hope is that moving forward, I feel like every week I have new ideas for new ways that not only just ideas for video topics, but just new ideas for how I can continue to make the quality of the content better, more engaging perhaps. And, and I would like to do more, you know, simple videos, just me putting a camera up and talking, because I think those are sometimes um, uh, more enjoyable to watch in, in some cases than the, the more produced ones. But I have some ideas for, for, I think, maybe more special topics where I want to put maybe more time into even making it more of a documentary feel in a sense, I guess sort of similar to some of the critical errors of Calvinism part one and two, where maybe there's more music and clips uh, kind of incorporated, um, just different elements to kind of help um, make a more, you know, comprehensive, cohesive uh, argument. And so I do, I have some ideas for s some topics that that might be fun to maybe experiment on somewhat and to try some some more of that kind of stuff in the future. And so all that say, just monthly supporters help a ton uh, because all that just requires me to build up more time, more resources, um, several things that I'm hoping to be able to get like a, like a website up um, and, you know, a website so I can start putting, you know, content into more of a library and, and building more of a library of the stuff I'm putting out that can be more easily searched. So for those who want to see stuff that maybe I put out five years ago on certain topics and it's, you don't want to sit and scroll for an hour on my channel trying to find it, you know, you can do search on a website and 
there's website applications where I can have um, like an app uh, that you could have a Great Life Studios app on your phone. So there's things like that too that um, right now I just I can't afford to to uh, pay for the monthly fees and bills for all, all that. And there's already different monthly fees for podcast hosting and music licensing and, and all that fun stuff, uh, which all you guys, your support is, is helping to continue to, to pay for some of that. And so anyways, that's just me saying thank you. I genuinely do uh, so appreciate those of you who have been supporting and those of you who have joined recently. And uh, so with that said, um, yeah, again, I look forward to hearing any of your thoughts in the comments to this and we will see you in the next video. Thank you for listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, you can find links in the show notes of this episode to our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media accounts. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced by Great Light Studios and you want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. There have been a handful of people that have jumped on to support on a monthly basis in the past month or so, and I just want to say thank you to all of you. Thank you also to Burns Cornerstone Community Church and all the other monthly financial supporters who make it possible for me to do what I'm doing. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people.